Welcome to The Human Project, your podcast for inspiring stories. I am Corina Rosa Falkenberg, and I'm here today at a very special place. I'm here at Istana. Istana is a beautiful retreat center on the island of Bali, and it's overlooking the ocean. I can't wait to sit together with David, or as he's also calling himself, Meditation Dave on Instagram to talk about power, to talk about what it means to have power and what it means also to claim power back. Dave's mission in life is to uplift humanity through meditation. So I will go in for our conversation and find out what exactly he means by saying that. You have a very fascinating personality. Um, you have found it here in Istana, and Istana is a beautiful retreat center. It's a retreat center where people can get together, they can exchange and they can build up, how to call it, I would say their internal network, their internal connection. They can of course increase their awareness, their consciousness, because of all the offers you have, like the yoga sessions here, the Vipassana, which is online as well available and also this gathering together at night at the fire. What was your intention with the retreat center here? Well, it mainly just started as an idea that me and my sister used to discuss, which was that people learn things and develop and grow in their own ways. And mm -hmm. so the best thing to do is to bring them together in a meeting place, whether that's online or offline, and it helps people to be able to grow. Back then, it wasn't as easy for me to encounter developed people in the flesh so I wanted to be able to create a space where people could come in contact with people. Mm -hmm. So there are the teachings, there are the things that we offer, but the lifeblood of it is the type of person that you draw to the place and the conversations that happen because of that and the, the growth that occurs organically. Mm -hmm. But then later, as I got deeper into meditation, it became more a meditation center in my mind as well mm -hmm. because I feel like that's delivering on another promise that I wanted mm -hmm. to deliver on, which is mm -hmm. to be able to create a space where people can really connect to these practices and go deeper into them. So mm -hmm. those two things together. Mm -hmm. When um, we just said hello, I mentioned how beautiful your aura is. Because I came here, it was very hot. I came <laughs> in here with my scooter, my bags, and then there you were. And you were shining out calmness. And I said to you, it's like certain waves there hitting me in a beautiful way, so I could calm down. Mm. And do you remember what you said? It's just because, you remember what you said when we just... I just said I was just listening to you. Yeah. So you were with the focus with me, and this is what our energies, they exchanged. I think they, they mixed and they got aligned. Do you know about the HeartMath Institute? I think that's their name anyway, and I think they're the ones who conducted an experiment with humans and horses, wow. where you tracked the heartbeats of humans and now we know that the electromagnetic field extends about eight to twelve feet outside of a human something like that I might be misquoting that but then a horse is similar mm -hmm. but then when the two heart fields of a horse and a human come in contact mm -hmm. and they overlap then the heartbeat of the horse starts to sync with the heartbeat of the human wow so then if the human is agitated and distressed then obviously the, the horse is going to be agitated too mm -hmm. And if the human's calm, then there's this beautiful communication that starts to happen back and forth. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's spent time with horses knows this. Mm -hmm. They know there's this slightly unexplainable connection between them. Mm -hmm. But that's a good explanation for it. And I feel like we're doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I realized this actually, before I knew anything to do with the horses, 
I was thinking about this when I was on a subway in London, when mm. I was on the underground in London, and I'd been deep in meditation for a few years and I came back, so I was quite a different person. And I remember sitting there thinking, we're all actually touching each other right now. Because, mm. you know, if you've been on the subway in London, yeah. it's no wider yeah. than this kitchen. And so there's no way that our heart fields are not in contact with each other. Mm. So at any one point on the underground, you're touching, let's say, 10 to 50 people. Mm. You know, they're in your space. And so mm. we're always communicating and interacting with each other anyway on a very real level. And that's mm. one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of honesty, because I feel like we're always registering the truth anyway. It's mm. just how much we're willing to verbally express it. Mm. Oh. Like, what we have, and also I think what you create here is, again, is this human connection. When it comes to meditation, meditation plays a very crucial role in your life. To meditate means also to be in silence and also to be in a kind of solitude state of mind. It just comes to my mind that maybe some people are afraid of even trying meditation because, oh, maybe I feel lonely. How was it for you when you experienced first meditation? Could you relate to those experiences? And if so, what would be your recommendation for a new one who is interested? Oh, Dave is talking about meditation. I want to try it as well. How to start? What to do? Well, first off, I don't think people are lonely because they're alone. I think mm. they're lonely because they're afraid of being alone. Mm. So mm. the aloneness actually helps you to come to terms with that. Mm. We all know this thing. I think they talked about it in that wonderful movie, A Bronx Tale. that used to be one of my favorites when I was a kid, which is that you can feel the most alone when you're with a crowd of people, but you're out of sync with them. Mm -hmm. So you being alone and being able to find how you really feel yourself, what's the reality of your internal condition, this can make you feel less lonely. Mm -hmm. And then you're immune to this feeling regardless of the situation you're in. Mm -hmm. And also, that's one of the biggest fears people bring up. And I mm -hmm. feel this, I feel this resistance. Even last night, there was a friend at a... Um, we were having dinner with a bunch of friends and there was a new person I didn't know and the conversation come up about the meditation and they were trying to get me to convince her to start meditating and I, I never want to convince anyone to start meditating it's their choice but one of the big things was that she was just afraid of the silence but the reality of the matter is that it's not the silence that people are afraid of it's the fact that that makes them come face to face with themselves mm -hmm. and what does it say about us if we're afraid of coming face to face with ourselves To, then we've got two choices, right? Do we want to live the rest of our lives running away from what we are? Or do we want to take steps towards accepting that? One of them is going to help us to momentarily escape fear, just mm -hmm. for a second, until it catches back up with us again. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other one is going to actually solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just one of those choices that most people come to in their life where they realize that the only solution is being willing to look directly at mm -hmm. themselves and accept whatever that means. And this is sometimes so hard. I totally agree with what you say. And I so enjoy the journey to a large part, but sometimes it's so hard. I mean, you're facing very much when you are with somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody you like, then it's just like a real mirror of your fears. They come up. So how do you deal then with your fears? I mean, do you still have fears in your life? Because you seem to be so balanced. You used to be a monk. You're just in your mid-30s, you experience a lot, you're building up new brands, like while I was waiting for you, I met one of your colleagues, one mm. of your co-founders, and he named me something like more than five companies you're right now to build up. So it seems like your power is, is endless, and again, living in that beautiful space here gives and provides also calmness. So do you have fears? If so, what kind of fears are they, and how do you deal with them? Well, ultimately, I think fear is an illusion. And more than anything, it's a misunderstanding. Because what is fear? But it's us 
it falls into the category of reactivity when you're talking mm -hmm. about meditation. So you're mm -hmm. feeling something, you don't want to feel that thing. That's a fear. So if you're happy to feel mm, good anything... Dis good definition. I like that. Can you repeat it? Because I loved it. I want to just put it more in the focus because <laughs> that is very well said. If you're feeling something and you don't want to feel it, then that. that's fear. Mm. Whereas if you're happy to feel everything that you can feel, mm. then what's fear? What is there to be afraid of? This is so beautiful because sometimes when I have conversations like this, people say, I'm not afraid of anything. That's not possible. And with your definition, it shows like a couple of times, maybe hundreds of times per, per day, you're facing something. Maybe your, your mind or your body doesn't want to embrace, but at the end it's there and it needs to be incorporated because it's part of you. Right. And initially, I think this is what produces trauma, but on the, the cause of fear, like you're feeling something that's too intense for you to handle at the moment. Mm -hmm. So then that doesn't mean it's going to be too intense for you forever. Mm -hmm. It might even just take a second. Like you hold something, initially you touch like a, a hot cup of tea, mm -hmm. and it might be too hot for a second, but then you slowly close your hand around it, you get used to the heat, the intensity, and then you can take it. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with, you know, the principle of hormesis. You know, controlled doses of pain make us stronger. The Nietzschean thing, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, all of that. So every day we're facing the stresses of life and we can choose to shrink because of them and live in fear of coming in contact with anything that might stimulate us in an unpleasant way. Or we can learn to be able to feel those and not react to them and appreciate them as a flavor of life. And then when you do that, it's not so much that there are no fears, it's more just that everything can be integrated even if it starts as a fear, if it starts as something unpleasant that we don't want to feel, you know that there's this process that over time you can integrate everything and you can mm -hmm. start to become a wider human being personality. What happens if you are that kind of person then, if you are a wider um, a personality that have, has incorporated a large part of his fears, knows how to deal and be more, more balanced, how would a society change if you would have and higher number of people having that capacity and those skills. Well, I think we'd all be super happy and living wonderful lives is what it would be. And to be honest, I feel like one of the big problems is that we yeah. see that as something exceptional. Mm. We see that as this thing that maybe only sages and mystics can reach those states where they yeah. can be happy with everything. I don't think so. I think it's entirely normal. I think our body is like a palate. You know, just like our, our taste sensation. And so if we can learn to be able to feel all the flavors that are contained within our body, then we're finally, for the first time, starting to use our body correctly. And I think what we're actually doing right now is we're using our bodies and our minds incorrectly. It's just that no one gave us the user manual. No Where one gave is us this the instructions. coming from? I mean, as a baby, as babies are born, do you think they have all that capacity? Do you think they are perfect? And then it's society, it's the parents, it's their parents from the environment, whatever, and then they change. So do you think like a newborn is a perfect creature in that sense? I don't really like to think about perfection very much because I don't know the ultimate state that we're attaining mm -hmm. to go towards. I know the direction because mm -hmm. I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going and I've been in some mystical state so I can understand these things that are mm -hmm. further in the future. But I don't think it's really about perfect. Perfect. I think it's just about the health of the organism. Mm -hmm. I think it was Krishnamurti said that it's no sign of it's no sign of health being well adjusted to a sick society. Mm. And it's, I used to misquote that for years. I used to say <laughs> it's no sign of sanity being well adjusted to an insane society. Well, and so I think that no, I don't think babies are perfect because I don't think they've learned to use their faculties correctly. But I think that they are trainable. 
they are eminently trainable and everything we're doing to them throughout their lives is training them and we're training them to be unhealthy mm. because we're training them to model the world that we've created do you know much about shamanism yes and within the Toltec traditions especially Carlos Castaneda's yeah. teacher Don Juan his fictional teacher that he modeled on a real teacher says that the greatest act of sorcery that humans ever do is training babies to see the same world. Mm. Because what we're doing is we've been trained ourselves to see the same thing mm. and to catalogue it as a physical thing. Mm. Whereas actually there are so many possibilities of what we can see. And we know this through physics now as well, mm. that we are the ones who are creating the boundaries between objects, whereas actually they're energetic fields. And so we're seeing an interpretation all the time and we think we're seeing phenomena. And so what we do to babies, I think, is we entrain them to see the same interpretation that we have. And so we, what we call another interpretation is madness. Mm. Because if someone comes with a completely different interpretation of the world that's too far from our own, yeah. too far from the collective, yeah. that's madness, yeah. right? But just on the border of our interpretation mm. is genius. Because mm -hmm. it can provide a bridge and it start to expand the world mm. a little bit more. I like that. As my experience is when you are have a delta that is just a tiny bit too far away from the counterpart. He will not take you serious anymore. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I think you can expand a bit, but when you touch a certain point, the other person just like this, a hitting point, and then he assumes he cannot follow you anymore. Yeah. And he's out of it. My experience is the more I learn to know myself and the more I work on my patterns and layers of life, it's like an artichoke. I always like to draw this comparison to the key part of what I am. The more I feel empowered, but the more I feel empowered, the harder it is for someone else to lead me. So is there, when it comes to society, is there uh, enough possibility for the humankind to expand in that way because if everybody would feel like more empowered and more empowered i think you can see that from from kids that are not in a public classical school but out how free they are but to what extent can they be integrated in the current society model because they might be a kind of viewed as a rebellion kind of person because they have their own mind i think freedom leads us towards being able to work better with others actually I just think that one of the reasons that we rebel is because a lot of systems, and I don't just mean physical systems with mm -hmm. society, I mean especially our habit patterns of thought, mm -hmm. especially ones that are coded within our social conditioning, they're designed to be able to limit the way that we grow. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we come up against those. I don't believe in this model of power where one person controls another. I believe in the model of power where every individual controls themselves. So for example, if I had a gun to your head right now, then you still have a choice. If I say, okay, Karina, what we're going to do is we're going to go over there and I'm going to ask you to pick up your slippers and slap someone in the face with them, or I'm going to shoot you in the head. You could say, I don't want to slap someone in the face with my <laughs> slippers, shoot me in the head. It's still a choice. So I believe in this thing that we were talking about just before we got on the mic, which is that everyone is the master of themselves. Like Nietzsche said that we're both a master and a slave at the same time. We're a master to ourselves and we're a slave to our conditioning. And I think that the more that we recognize that we are actually the ones in control, the less that we live in this state of fear that someone else can pull out the rug from underneath us. And I think that's what's happening right now. We've, we've given the idea of control to institutions and certain sets of people, and we've let go of this feeling of capability and power that we have ourselves. And I think the biggest, the most revolutionary act a human can do is to take that back. 
Because once you take that back, you realize the government's not to blame. I just gave them power. And you notice it also on a smaller scale. I'm sure you've seen it in your life. What happens when you give someone power over yourself? Maybe you even do it just as an experiment. You just give them a little bit of control that they don't need to have. Sometimes it can corrupt them. It can make them act in a way that they wouldn't have acted if they'd kept their humility. But at the same time, it's so comfortable to just sit on the on the sofa and to just give responsibility away. It wasn't me, it was them. Mm -hmm. It's not my fault. I mean, we all know that. It's so easily said. And it makes you feel like, it's not me. Again, I'm just like, I feel good. It's what we said at the beginning of our conversation, and you would have to face your inner truth, mm -hmm. your higher self. Well, that's, that's why people do it, because there is a payoff. Mm -hmm. And the payoff is not having to care about anything. But then what do you lose? You lose this ability to be able to make a free choice. Mm. You give institutions, governments control so they can decide what you can do and what you can't do. And then they can decide what your children can do, what your children can't do. They can decide what they grow into. They decide who's watching who and who has control to be able to mm. penalize people for doing certain things and not doing other things. So that's one thing that we give up. But I'm not this... I'm not a big fan of this idea that fear is a motivator. So to me, that's not even the biggest thing. Mm. The biggest thing is that we just give up power. Mm. We give up. We think responsibility is a dirty word nowadays. We want to blame someone else. Mm. If you blame yourself, you get power back. And you realize that it's not that at that moment mm. you become a creator of your world. It's that you've always been a creator of your mm. world. You just haven't been doing it skillfully or consciously. Yeah. And I remember being like that. And I'm still like that at certain points. It's not a thing that it happens just once and mm. it's over. In every moment, in every area of life, I think we need to consciously choose to take this responsibility back. And then when we do do it, we realize we gave up something small for something massive. Yeah, we gave up the security of being able to trust someone else. Mm. That's like being a child with a parent. But at mm. some point we need to grow up and realize, oh, our parents are just humans. Mm. When am I going to be an adult and a human too? I cannot add anything because it was beautifully said, really. It brings me nonetheless to the next question. Like, sometimes I personally struggle with the love for humanity. Mm. Yeah? Because who, the more you make this journey towards yourself, the more you can also see the darkness. And then you can embrace also the light, of course. But you can see certain mechanisms, you can see some, wow, connections, and they are happy. And they are also related to this weakness, to the weakness part of humanity. How do you embrace it? How do you can still be positive towards humanity and keep up your optimism, despite having seen maybe all the darkness that is around that is surrounding us. I don't think love is to do with the object. I think it's to do with the, the giver of the love, mm -hmm. the subject. And I think that one thing that we haven't been taught, we talk about not getting the user manual to mm -hmm. being a human, is how to love. And the fact that love is an action. Mm -hmm. I think we've been taught the wrong model of love, which is I come in contact with a perfect object and I think that this is going to produce love in me. Mm -hmm. Whereas I can... I can produce love without an object. It's me moving my awareness to a certain place within me, mm. feeling love and choosing to reach out to another person with it. So mm. to me, it's not so much a matter of does humanity deserve love? Mm. Does this person deserve love or mm. that person deserve love? It's the fact that the best thing I can do for myself and others is being this loving state and give them this, this stable, loving awareness mm. and focus. And of course, it might not be the type of love that we usually talk about when we're talking about romantic love, mm. all these things, but we know the Greeks had a bunch of different words mm. for love, whereas we just use one for a lot of different things. And so I think one of the best things that we could do for ourselves and others is learn that loving someone does not mean approving of them. 
And they're two completely different things. It's not me saying, yes, I think these nefarious people running the government are doing the right thing by creating regulations to be able to dominate and control people. It's saying, no, whatever you are, I'm going to love you. Because for me not to love you is for me to give power to you. Because I'm saying that you... For me not to love you means to give power to you. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful key sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, For me not to love you means to give Mm -hmm. power to you. Because what I'm saying is that Mm -hmm. by what you choose Mm -hmm. to do... I'm allowing you to have control of my emotional mm. state. Mm. Like, for example, if you're chastising mm. a child... So good, that thought. Mm. Like, if you're chastising a child, you work with children in schools mm. and everything like this, like we're talking about education, then you can do that in a completely loving way. Mm. A child might be doing something that's bad for them, but it's not like you're angry at them. It's just you're telling them not to do mm. it, and it sometimes almost becomes a game as well. Mm. But you can still do this with love. Mm. then we do the same thing with an adult we see an adult doing something wrong but we actually let go of our control there because Mm. we sense them as a threat Mm. so I think the key thing here is to realize that we're too powerful to be threatened Mm. if we can realize we're too powerful to be threatened then however we deal with people we cannot be moved out of our position of love because the only reason we would be moved out of that position is if we feel that they can cause us some form of harm Mm In a consequent that might also, in a way, solve the situation of power concentration, right? And um, power concent- yeah, that power might be decentralized. This might be one of the consequences, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think, mm. I think power naturally is decentralized. It's just mm. how willing are we to accept reality? I think every single individual has so much power to change. But what we do is we want to believe that one piece of the body is powerful, one piece of the organism is powerful. So we give our power to the state, whereas actually that power is generated everywhere in the body. And we might be the little finger, we might be the heart, who knows? We're one piece of this organism. And if we don't claim our power, then it means we're just giving it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best thing that we can do is to learn these skills like we're talking about that bring us the awareness of our power again, so we know what effect we can really have. What's the origin? Why do we tell ourselves that story? I think it's exactly what you were talking about because it's comfortable to be able to blame someone else. We so get responsibility. Human weakness or part of humanity. Yeah, and that and it's exactly what you've been talking about the whole conversation. Mm-hmm. It comes from fear, right? Mm-hmm. Why would we feel the need to blame someone mm-hmm. else and to give a responsibility to someone else? It's because we're afraid of the consequences of our actions. And so if we're not afraid of anything, then we don't need to give the power away. So it comes mm-hmm. back to this feeling of anti-fragility. Do you know Nassim Taleb? He wrote Anti-Fragile. And I love this concept. As soon as I saw the title, I knew exactly what the book was going to be about because I've been thinking about that concept for years. I just never put it in those terms. And it's where something can be one of three things. It can either be fragile, robust, or anti-fragile. Something fragile breaks or gets destroyed or degrades by stress, time, pressure. Something robust survives it, and something anti-fragile gains and improves from stress, time, pressure. And I think humans have the ability to be anti-fragile. As we grow over time, we have so much experience just from growing old. I'm not even old, I'm mid-30s, and I feel like I have so much more experience than I did 15 years ago. And so you can integrate this knowledge and use it if you're willing to take it on board. Mm -hmm. But if you've been hiding from information, then you make yourself fragile. And then you become weak. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go for it. No, no, I'm good. I have so many questions in my mind because you're an excellent counterpart to talk with. You have so deep, well, thoughtful thoughts. It's amazing. Thank you. So, 
if you look at yourself at the age of 10, what advice would you give yourself at that stage of life where you would say you could take a shortcut? I made that experience and now I teach you and now you go more rapidus in life. What would be your, your biggest recommendation? If it was just one skill, I would teach my 10-year-old self a passion of meditation mm. because I feel like it's the art of learning to use yourself. It's the art of becoming aware of yourself and exploring yourself. So it's basically the action that is the counterpart to the concepts we've been talking about in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I knew a lot of those when I was younger, but I didn't know there was a singular action I could take that would help me to learn those things. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like a shortcut. If mm -hmm. a 10-year-old can start using professional meditation, they'll become a superhuman. It's amazing. But um, a, a piece of advice that I would have loved to get when I was 10 is to just pick something. Pick something and become really good at it. Mm, the focus. Yeah, just, mm -hmm. I mean, I had focus then, but I didn't have this knowledge that just mm -hmm. pick something and become really good at it. Because one, you're going to become so good at it that it can become your profession, it can become everything. You can become amazing at it, you can do whatever you want with it. Two, even if it doesn't produce any wealth in your life or success, you're going to love it so much that it's not going to matter that you have those other things anyway. Because you have your thing, you have the, the heart of your activity. And I think if people just had more confidence to be able to pick something they loved, or the knowledge like Blaise Pascal talked about, that if you pick something and focus on it, you're going to eventually generate interest in it and love it. So the object, again, isn't the important thing. It's just focusing on the thing. Mm -hmm. So I would love to give that to my 10-year-old self, just to be picking something and going with it. And I did do that a little bit later, but if I started at 10, then even better. I mean, as far as I know, you became financially independent before you turned 30. Mm -hmm. So was this one of the major reasons for it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Like, uh, but before the financial independence became the emotional independence. Mm. And so I, I could say that I really became free when I realized I was sitting alone in the woods when I was living a monkish life. And I realized I didn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. And I had nothing. I had maybe a couple of pairs of trousers in my backpack, some peanut butter. I was alone in the woods and I'd go and sit there and meditate. And I'd just wait until something came along. I said, I'm just going to sit here and just meditate. Mm. And meditate all day there. And I realized I didn't need anything else. So then that put me in an anti-fragile state mm -hmm. because then risk is no longer risk. Mm -hmm. Risk is simply playing a game to see the opportunities that life chooses to give you. But if one flavor can be handled with joy and another flavor can be handled with joy, what does it matter anymore where we end up? Mm -hmm. If I'm going to die an old man meditating alone, what does it matter what happens on the story between here and there? Right? It's just mm -hmm. an adventure. And the real question then is just a singular question. It's not, it's not multifaceted. It's just, am I willing to say yes to the adventure? Your adventure might be different than mine, but it's the same thing. Who are your benchmarks? And who are your, the people you like to, I wouldn't necessarily say look upon, but people mm. that inspire you? Because with all that you have in your mind, your excellent well-developed mindset, all the things that you did. Do you have a kind of mentor even that you are working with? Or who is your inspirational source in life? It might be, of course, meditation. But do you have something or someone in, I wouldn't call it real life because the other one is reality as well. Do you have, do you have something or someone close to you where you say, it helps me next to my meditation? Not really, no. Like mm -hmm. I, when I was younger, I really craved for this. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that 
we're all getting all the information we need all the time anyway. Mm. We just need to develop the senses to be able to perceive it. Mm. And meditation helped me to do that. And I realized meditation was the teacher. Mm. I wanted to find meditation and find a great teacher of meditation. But then by the time I really got deep into meditation, I realized, oh, this is the teacher. And then in that state, I have contact with everything. And then I pick up a book by Margot Anand or by Stephen Pressfield, mm. or I listen to a quote by Nelson Mandela mm. and I hear the truth. Mm. And it's that thing that Jesus said, who has the eyes to see will mm -hmm. see, the ears to hear will hear. So before I could be reading the same book, but I wouldn't get the message from the teacher. And now I go, and wherever I go, I'm getting mentored because I'm getting information, I'm getting educated by my environment. But when I was younger, yeah, there were the people, like there are the, the beautiful people that have left their mark on life for us to lead us in the right direction. You know, Bruce Lee, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Carl Jung, Friedrich Nietzsche, Stephen Pressfield, Jesus, Buddha, they're everywhere. And all we have to do is be willing to open our eyes and explore ourselves internally and we're going to start to feel that these people are simply expressing the universal story and if we start to get to know our story intimately we realize our position in that story mm -hmm. and the frame of it is exactly the same does that make sense absolutely because at the end it's wrapping up what we said before it brings it again to the point is this also again you're a visionary you have so many projects on the table and You're doing a lot also when it comes to education. We just spoke about it. Um, it's about uh, to digitalize education for those who are really in need for worldwide. So you're really a visionary. What do you say? I mean, the visions most probably come from the same source, right? Yes. So, <laughs> of course, I can answer it now myself. So, but again, maybe you have some listener here and they say, but how can I realize those visions? Or if I find the vision at all, because sometimes I'm struggling, I don't know what the purpose of my life is. Yeah, and then the classical answer is, if you would know yourself, you would know your purpose. And then normal people, normally people say, but I cannot find it, I'm running after my purpose in life. The word purpose is, mm -hmm. has become a very, very popular word, to find your purpose. So I assume your answer would be go into meditation. 100% and mm. I would just say also not meditation as a general word, Vipassana mm. meditation because mm. that's a skill, mm. it's not a religion, it's not, you don't need to believe anything different, mm. it is a rational skill that I could explain from the A to the Z what exactly it does to you mm. and how to do it and how to develop the skills. With a lot of things you have to take this leap of faith, you have to believe in a guru, trust me you don't need a guru mm. for this and one of the things that we did to help to decentralize power last year is make these courses available online because I love the way that they were taken out of the monasteries and made available to everyone for free but then they started to get closed down last year when all the restrictions came about mm -hmm. and then all these people meditating together producing these bubbles of love they start to get shut down mm -hmm. so I thought it's the time to be able to give people the ability to do this wherever they are and also that is the real answer of what I want when I was a kid and all I'm doing right now is I'm making the resources that I wanted to have when I was 14 when my mind switched on and I realized I was responsible. Mm -hmm. I looked for other people ahead of me that I could learn from. And these things I'm making right now are the things that that kid needed to be able to grow up and make use of his potential. Mm -hmm. But I do have an answer to the creativity one that's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I don't think humans, I don't think humans generate ideas. I think humans receive ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are 
there are pre-existing things that are beyond our ability to be able to see. Mm -hmm. And if we go deep enough into ourselves, we can feel them and let them funnel through us. Mm -hmm. So for example, the iPhone you're recording this on, mm -hmm. this existed in someone's imagination before it came into reality. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that idea mm -hmm. of a communication device coming into reality was mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And then Steve Jobs was the person mm -hmm. who could say was the clearest channel to be able to receive it and bring it into the, into the world. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like novels, visionary yes. ideas for companies, these are the same things. And my experience of story is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I don't write a story over a year. Mm -hmm. I sit down and meditate for a few days, maybe a few hours, and I have the whole novel in my head. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the job is just turning that into language. Mm -hmm. I, again, we are totally aligned. I think ideas come and either you catch it at that very moment. It's always good to have like this, a notebook next to me, because I think ideas might go away then if you don't catch it at that very moment. So you cannot say, oh, I'll get back to you in three hours. The idea might be gone. Yeah. So it's best to capture it. Do you have some practical tools if you have that idea, if you want to write that novel, how to do it? Now the idea is there. What to do? Well, it's like you said with um, the knowing yourself thing. And it seems such mm -hmm. vague advice, but it is the best advice. But how to know yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's why meditation becomes so difficult because people sit and they feel distraction. And they don't realize this is getting to know yourself. Because this is getting to know what we're allowing our mind to do. And our mind can be our best friend or our worst enemy. So what we need to do is we need to train it to be our best friend. And if our mind is consistently trained to respond to distraction, then obviously when we sit to meditate, all we feel is distraction. So we need to give ourselves enough time on the clock, alone, digesting what we are without putting in external input to be able to get down to the true layer of what we are. And then if we can do that, And if we have that still pool inside of us, mm -hmm. then we can receive this creativity that comes to us. Mm -hmm. And it will naturally be fully formed. We don't need to think about how to make it better. We just receive it. And then when, once in the world, the reverse skill is just discipline. Mm -hmm. Self-discipline produces freedom. If you can be still enough to receive ideas from the universe and you have self-discipline, mm -hmm. then you can achieve anything. Because then you have the steps to be able to take small steps towards mm -hmm. achieving a goal and you have the ability to receive these massive ideas from the universe. And I think one of the big things that stops people from doing that is that they're not willing to take imperfect action. Mm. And I was the same. I was a perfectionist when I was younger. Things needed to be right. It needed to be the right time, the best way to do something. Mm. And I was waiting for everything to be right to take action. And if it wasn't perfect, that would be my excuse for saying, oh, maybe I'm just not meant to do it today. <laughs> Whereas one of my favorite quotes comes from W. Somerset Maugham and Stephen Pressfield quotes mm. him in Turning Pro actually, which is that Somerset Maugham was asked, do you only write when inspiration comes? And he said, yes, but luckily inspiration shows up at 9 a.m. every day when I sit at my desk. And so it's yeah. like that. We need to become regular as human beings, self-regulated. And that's where that side of the lack of fear and the anti-fragility comes mm. hand in hand with the creativity and the visionary spirit. Because one allows you to be able to hold the other mm. and to be able to bring it into reality. Beautiful. Next question. How is then a classical day look like with Dave? What do you pack in? How many hours of sleep do you need? Do you make journaling in the morning or do you directly start with a meditation? How many hours of meditation? When do you have time to get those ideas, to catch them? Mm. When do you realize them? When do you have all your meetings? Well, one, 
at heart, I'm a self-experimenter before mm-hmm. I'm a meditator because that's what led me to the meditation. And the reason I landed on the meditation is to me, it's the most refined form of self-experimentation mm-hmm. I found. So right now I don't have a set sleeping pattern because mm-hmm. I'm experimenting with different things. Mm-hmm. But let's say when I come back to my reset mode, then I'll sleep about six hours a night, maybe less. When I was meditating six to 18 hours a day, then I used to not sleep because you don't really need to sleep because your mind's so clear. So I'd lay down for an hour or two just to give my body a chance to rest and I'd be back up again. Six to 18 hours starts to make you experience amazing things that would sound like I was making them up if I started talking about them in this interview, but they exist. Mm. And you start to move a little bit away from, Mm. very far away from the common idea of reality that we've created. So if you're gonna do that, be ready for that. And don't expect people to understand you. Just go with it yourself. As an entrepreneur, I like to meditate about four hours a day because I feel like it gives me enough time to clean the slate and not just get caught in that confusion and distraction that we collect through our interaction with the world that we've been discussing. And I get to get to clean all of that and get deeply into myself. And then more importantly, to get so deeply into myself that I get to the universal. Because if we get caught within ourselves as well, then we're still at the personal, Mm -hmm. we're still at the independent level. Was if we can go through all of that, then we get to the universal, and that's where the ideas exist. And that's where we can start to take all of this a lot less personally as well, because we realize that we're just one collection of energy moving in a certain way that's part of this total universe. And it allows us to face this with strength, courage, fear, because what are we really losing anyway? Nothing is lost or gained. So four hours a day meditation, I like to meditate first thing when I get up, but sometimes I do cryotherapy first, then I go for a jog, then I meditate afterwards because going for a jog, yoga, cryotherapy opens the body up, so then you can have a different form of meditation. It can get much more physical into you if you want to produce physical changes. Then I like to write in the morning to be able to get my thoughts out, clear them out. I I used to do a thing called an external monologue, which I don't really follow so much anymore, which I'd write whatever Mm. came into my mind, however much nonsense it was, and then just like with a sewage pipe, slowly watch it becoming clean water. And you see your, for, your forms of communication slowly start to organize themselves better and get more creative and more beautiful. So I do that until I see that my mind started to reorganize itself. Now I'm more like writing down my ideas because I have set ideas that I want to write down when I come out of meditation. How much time do you spend on that? Not that much anymore because I just mm-hmm. note things down very quickly mm-hmm. with, the, with the ideas. But when I'm writing novels or things like that, then I spend a lot more time on that because mm-hmm. they're more detailed notes. Mm-hmm. Now with ideas, I find they're very easy to remember because they're real things. Mm-hmm. So if I can see the real thing, I don't even need to remember it. It's there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to remember yeah. this table. It's here. Mm-hmm. It's like I know how to use it. So it's more just about seeing the thing clearly in the first place. Then I have meetings and work pretty much all day. And then in the evening do a workout, do the spa, use the hot pool, the cold pool, the infrared sauna to be able to clean myself and then meditate again in the evening. And of course, socialize, do some stuff that I like in between as well. How much time do you you give yourself for socializing or friendship? Like socializing can be a lot. It can also build Mm -hmm. up professional relationships. And to what extent do you have time in your life where you say this is like real private time? Do you, do you, how do you balance that? Well, I think life is a marathon, but I think the marathon's made up of short series of sprints. And so if I've got a thing I really need to get done for work, I'd rather just work. And I think people become afraid of this and they feel like they need to be balanced. But balance is death ultimately because nothing is moving. So 
And balance doesn't really exist because everything is slowly either degenerating mm. or growing anyway. So if I need to get something done, I'd rather just fully focus on work mm. and get it done. And then when it's time to take a break, I'll take a break and do what I want to do. So I don't feel like I need to fit in a certain amount of socializing a day or a week. It's more just like when the organism needs it, then I'll give it to it when it's the right time. Mm. What time do you go to bed and how often do you eat per day? And are you a vegetarian or a vegan? I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, but when I go deep into meditation, I become a vegan. Mm -hmm. So when I was living like a monk for three years, I was a vegan because mm -hmm. that's the best setup for meditation. Mm -hmm. For doing business, I find different things are better. Going to bed, sleep is one of the things that I still haven't fully integrated into my structure because I experimented with it too much and it depends upon <laughs> what I want to achieve. Uh -huh. And especially for the next five years where I think I'm still going to be doing business, there's things that I want to get done and they're more important to me than my my sleep patterns but that's not the right approach i think sleep is a very important thing it's just something where <laughs> i don't i don't follow my own advice as much as i should i go to bed between 10 p.m and 4 a.m oh wow so you're it. very flexible it's not like you have a strict bedtime if that's... i'm living like a soldier and i've got a rhythm and i'm working on something that's set then i can do that But now, as you said, I'm involved in quite a few different projects. So sometimes something comes up that needs my immediate response. Mm. And so I just made a choice a few years ago that during this period of my life, I'm going to troubleshoot when I need to troubleshoot. So then I can give up the sleep because I know that even if I'm tired one day, then the next day I can recover with meditation. So I might need a day of recovery, but then the day after I'm going to be fine again. How is your practical approach when it comes to targeted goals? Because you just mentioned a five years horizon. So do you have, I assume you do, because a lot of the high white people, a lot of the leaders I know, um, the, the people that are empowered and they are entrepreneurs, they do have those plans. What, where, will they, where do they want to be in five or 10 years? Mm -hmm. right? How can you keep track of that? And how can you not feel stressed of, okay, in five years, I want to be there and there? Uh, for me, it's quite an easy thing because there's a meditation I do when I started to come out of being a monk where I started to visualize exactly what I want. So mm. exactly like we talked about with novels or business ideas, it's a thing. So I see myself in five years. I see where I'm going to be. Visualization. Yes, but I would, I would move away from the word visualization <laughs> because I think the core of it is the feeling. Mm -hmm. And then the visualization is the image that corresponds to that feeling. Whereas if mm. you start with the image then you might not get down to the core feeling. That's really the important thing. So it's more about finding, finding the things that produce the highest excitement within us mm -hmm. and allowing them to expand outwards to produce the vision that we see ourselves living. And so for me, I don't have multiple different goals for all these businesses. I have one place that I'm going in five years and all these different businesses are simply aspects of my growth. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, because it's so diff de how do you say in English? Derivative. It's it's what derivative. You exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I would like to have one last question. If you, because we all have to leave that world um, with our physical body, what would you like your best friend saying about you? that I changed the world and gave people a powerful form of meditation that allowed them to be able to produce anything they wanted to do in life. Dave, I feel so inspired and I have so many ideas right now also to start journaling in the morning again to go for the meditation and to, I could get that power that you have, you know, this visionary inspirational vibe. 
So thank you so much for the conversation. I feel very, very, very enriched. Thank you for your time, for being so open and for sharing all that knowledge because you really have a lot of knowledge and not just that. Yeah, I think you have your own mind and you're capable of explaining it so good in such a, in, in so many different layers that it was, it was a beautiful gift on the day. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Corinna. I appreciate it. Oh, this was a nice conversation. I feel so inspired. I'm now back out overlooking the ocean on the top of the cliff. You can hear the waves in the background. And yeah, I feel really deeply inspired. And I do hope you enjoyed the time we spent together as much as I did. I would like to encourage you to subscribe to Dave's free Vimpassana course that you can find online. You can find uh, more information here on the show notes as well as on his Instagram account, Meditation Dave. Make sure you also subscribe to my channel here, to my podcast. And as you know, I'm always very happy to receive one of your reviews or comments. Keep on shining. Yours, Karina Rosa. <laughs>